from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos. This is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 19, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. Fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marjan, and I'm Brian Scherchel. And today we will be discussing the, the 20th anniversary film in the Godzilla franchise, 1974's Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, aka Godzilla vs. the Bionic Monster and Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster. Yes, we continue on our 1970s adventure in uh, Godzilla. We still have this one and one more after this, and then we are completely done with the original Showa series of our films, which is uh, by far the the longest one out of the yeah, all definitely the, the longest yeah franchise, longest stretch of films in the uh, in the entire franchise. I think I'm going to end up missing the Showa era, to be honest. <laughs> I know I will. Our related topic for this episode is the history and culture of Okinawa. All right, Brian, first order of business, let's bring our audience up to speed with our brief film description. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is the defender of Earth, combating alien invaders. He's less anthropomorphic than in the previous film, although he does display some human-like reactions and intelligence. Mechagodzilla is an aggressive robot kaiju created and controlled by the warlike simians. King Caesar, or King Ushiza, is an ancient guardian lion-based deity protecting the royal Izumi family on Okinawa, defending the people. The ever-feisty Anguirus realizes that Godzilla attacking Japan is a fake and tries to intervene. Our protagonists include archaeologist Shesuke Shimizu and Seiko Kaneshiro, who transport a King Caesar statue to Okinawa to awaken the legendary monster, Hideto Miyajima, a scientist captured by the simians and forced to repair Mechagodzilla, Masahiko Shimizu, Keisuke's brother, and Ikuku Miyajima, Hideto's daughter, who always find themselves in the middle of the action, and Interpol agents Nanbara and Tamura, who follow the heroes to protect them from the simians. Kurunoma is the cold and ruthless leader of the simian invasion force. The human and kaiju plots are unified. The characters' actions are always connected to the kaiju plot, most notably with the King Caesar statue, which serves as a MacGuffin. The conflicts are ultimately resolved by both the humans and the kaiju. Anguirus fights a disguised Mechagodzilla, but is defeated. Later, Godzilla battles Mechagodzilla at the refinery and is forced to retreat. King Caesar is awakened by the heroes and holds his own against Mechagodzilla, but is outmatched by the robot. The problem is solved when Godzilla returns and joins forces with King Caesar. Godzilla turns himself into a magnet, pulling Mechagodzilla to him, and rips the robot's head off. Meanwhile, Nanbara, Professor Miyajima, and Masahiko destroy the simian base by sabotaging their technology with the professor's special pipe. The script was written by Hiroyasu Yamamura and director Jun Fukuda from a story by Shinichi Sekizawa and Masami Fukushima. Like Rodan, it has many characters and several subplots, but the story itself is a relatively simple thriller with lots of intrigue. The film was allotted a slightly larger budget, but it still remained low. 
special effects director Teruyoshi Nakano made minor redesigns to the Godzilla suit, hardening its appearance while creating a second suit for the fake Godzilla and impressive new suits for both Mechagodzilla and King Caesar. Only a few brief shots of stock footage are used. The film's tone has both light and dark elements. It does have some serious moments. It's a fantasy film despite the science fiction and spy film trappings. It isn't an experimental film because it's once again an alien invasion story. It borrows from both Planet of the Apes and King Kong Escapes. This was an expansion of style for the Godzilla franchise because it was the first to feature Mechagodzilla. This style is reinforced by subsequent Mechagodzilla entries in the franchise. The film was created to celebrate Godzilla's 20th anniversary. By featuring several mainstay actors from the series' heyday, most notably Akihiko Hirata and Hiroshi Koizumi, and a plot that allowed for Godzilla to revert to his destructive ways without neglecting his then-current hero status, the studio sought to appeal to both new and longtime Godzilla fans. The film was released March 21, 1974 in Japan, where it sold 1.33 million tickets, which was 350,000 more than 1973's Godzilla vs. Megalon, the least successful film in the series at the time. It was released in the U.S. by CinemaShares in March 1977. It remains popular with fans who consider it one of the best 1970s Godzilla films. The dub version initially had several scenes of strong language and human violence edited. Most notably, Nanbara strangling a simian and his shootout with them later were deleted. The opening credits and the epilogue featuring Nami celebrating were also cut. A new title card was added, one that originally blotted out the original title and later had artwork that cropped it out. The film was restored to Toho's uncut international version on home media. Okinawa and his culture are key components of the movie because the island had recently been returned to Japan. Nami's grandfather, a descendant of the Okinawan royal family, expresses a long-standing hostility toward the mainland by praying that Godzilla would avenge the wrongs committed against the Ryukyuan people by the Japanese. The film dabbles in Okinawan spirituality and religion by way of Nami's vision and an ancient prophecy painted on a mural. Nami's grandfather puts his prejudice against the mainland aside when the heroes bring the Shiza statue to awaken King Caesar. Professor Miyajima seeks redemption for repairing Mechagodzilla by sabotaging the simians. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion of this film. So Brian, what do you think of Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, or as I like to call it, Magneto vs. the Terminator? <laughs> I really like this one. Uh, it's, uh, it's great. It's for one, I just love the music. The whole thing is yes. just, it's it, it, all peppy and jazz band, big sound, and I like Sato anyway. But like the, I, this the is movie, his last movie this, too. Yeah, yeah. and then, then this music like embodies the movie. Really, it's so fitting. And so, like mm-hmm. whenever I think of this movie, I just think of that music. Yeah, the in score in this one really does stand out. Yeah, and it's just fun that way. It's a pretty fun movie. Yeah, I was I was listening to another podcast recently where the host noted that you know, Kasato has scored several of the Showa era Godzilla movies. Yeah, and I like all of them. Mm-hmm. And he noted that, with rare exception, each one of the scores that he composed sounds different compared to the other ones. I think actually my favorite piece of uh, of music in this one would probably be the when Mechagodzilla is revealed. When all the the fake skin melts off, that mm-hmm. theme is just stuck in my head yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. That super jazzy, 
peppy. Yeah, I don't know theme who, song. I don't know who thought of you know going this direction, but it actually fits really well. If it was Ikafube music, I don't think it would have fit. Not as well. No, as this. not not the not for the sort of movie they were going for. No, no, it doesn't fit the tone. I don't think. No, but but since we're on the subject of the music, I I think the other the other thing we should probably bring up would be uh, Nami's prayer. Yeah, that music. That music. Yeah, it's great. I like. I. I, I mean, the first no, time I watched this movie, I was like, "What is? Oh, she's doing a whole musical." Yeah. I mean, it's no Mothra song. I'll say that, but it's still actually pretty good. I have a, I have a distinct memory when uh, when I was younger and I was watching this movie, and uh, my mother, who is a uh, who is a singer with perfect pitch, she walked in and the first thing she said was, "That girl is singing off key." <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Just tad. <laughs> but you were you had some funny thoughts uh, before we started recording that I thought were actually pretty funny <laughs> related well, to I, this. I felt like it's the, it's it reminded me of that part from War of the Gargantuas when that one singer yeah shows up and then well I won't spoil it but that something happens after that but mm-hmm. there, there's uh, it made me think that in this movie she should have. As soon as she started the the music, like there should have been like a sound stage that like popped out of the beach, and then she she starts doing this, and then like the bands behind her and everything, yeah. and they just, and then she grabs a microphone and just goes into it. Yeah, I know it's it's wonderful, you know, when you decide to pray to your lion dog god that you know a, a band just magically starts playing a full a full song for you. Well, and then I mean, as far as just something that I thought was funny about this movie is, uh, is that King Ushiza only responds to the song if it's sung by a member of the royal family. Yeah, that that's uh, of Okinawa, and I was like, God, what an elitist monster! It's only it only serves one family in this. No, I I can't think of a kaiju that's ever done that. I mean, Mothra kind of listens to the fairies, but this is a little different. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, uh, King Caesar's a uh, very particular, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he only he only takes orders from like what two people? <laughs> as far as we know, they're the only the only Azumis left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then and then like she takes her time. With the song too, I know. and I was like, "Oh, a second verse." <laughs> yeah, I was just like, "This is a good what four, four or five minutes." You Might want to hurry up. Yeah, I was just, I was like, "I'm glad Mechagodzilla is not in a hurry." <laughs> yeah, and it even cuts to Mechagodzilla <laughs> approaching them as yeah. she's continuing the song. Yeah, like, I think oh, it's hurry I, up. I think it was that was meant to create some suspense there, but tension. Just, yeah, mm-hmm. some tension, and I'm just like, "Well, that's kind of." Funny. He's like, "I am not in a hurry." <laughs> yeah, I mean, Falls is just totally chilled there on the beach singing away and i think it's one of the more it's one of the most memorable parts of of any part of this movie did you like me secretly hope that you would have had some karaoke style words with a bouncing ball pop up during that scene Uh, i I thought maybe they'd they'd bring it back at the end like we have we've had these songs at the end of these movies lately 71 did Mm -hmm. 72 did 72 yeah Megalon, kind of, yeah. but that was they didn't bring anything back. It was just the little, just the Jet that. Jaguar fight song, or as right. There's, al- right. There's always been like some sort of song at the end, yeah, like uh, some little pop song lately. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and instead, she was the pop song, essentially. Yeah, and it's like it's just interesting how that musical number came about. I, I like it. 
it's it's really good. I think you need to have for some reason I think this movie needed it. Yeah, actually, now that I think no problem, about it, you know, definitely could have used it. Yeah, actually, now that I think about it, it seems like that was kind of a trend with the '70s Godzilla movies having these pop cultural, you know, these pop songs mm-hmm. popping up in them. Yeah, even that's if they a little about, too many pops. Yeah, even if they are about <laughs> Godzilla, yeah, and they're just like these two stanza things. It's still it's still cool to have it. Yeah, I think movies around then were doing that more often, and so they they glommed onto another trend. Yeah. Uh, me, uh, I do really enjoy this one. It's actually a funny story how I found this one. I was, I can't remember exactly at what point in my fandom this was. It was fairly early on. I was in my mid-teens, I think. I found it on VHS as a, another one of those VHS two-packs I've mentioned before at a, at a Kmart. I thought it was Terror of Mechagodzilla. So I was really excited because I thought, finally, I found the one that, you know, the first one I saw on TV. I want to actually see the whole thing now. And it ended up being this. Yeah, it ended up being this because yeah. I just thought what it was was just, just, just under a different title or something. So Which, that is uh, pretty easy to assume sometimes. Yeah. Slightly, but I th- thankfully, now we all have yeah. official. And the, the blurb on the back of the video didn't give me any sort of indication that it would have been uh-huh. something else from what I can remember. I don't know how long it took me to figure out that it was a different movie. <laughs> Probably, I, mean, I don't know. Because I, I kept thinking, it's like, none of these human characters look like the ones I remember. I, like I said, I don't remember how long it took me, but I eventually figured out, no, this is a completely different movie. So it, my first viewing of it was a little bittersweet because on one hand i'm excited that i was excited that i found another godzilla movie i didn't know about on the other hand i was disappointed i didn't find the first one yeah that i saw keep wanting to find that one yeah so other than that yeah i had tremendous uh, i had a tremendous amount of fun with this one something that uh, we should know we've talked about this is this was sato's last film uh or last godzilla film but it's also Sekizawa's. It's also Sekizawa's. Yeah, he didn't write the script on this one, but it's the last time he was involved with any of these movies. And it's also Jun Fukuda's mm-hmm. final film, the final Godzilla film. Yeah, this isn't a sort of an end of an era, even before we get to the last movie of this show. Yeah, era. in a lot of ways. Because really, I, I I think of Sekizawa when I think of the Showa series in general, just because he's Which made is totally such an impact. And I really like Fukuda too, so... Yeah, he almost didn't work on this one. I think it, someone had to convince him to do it because they said we wanted you, we want you to make another script, and he said, "I'm out of ideas. All the mm. monsters have been done." And then I think it yeah, was he even, he even invented his own monster. Yeah, and then I think it was Nakano suggested, "Well, why don't you do the robot double thing like in King Kong Escapes?" And then Sekizawa said, "Oh, okay. I guess I got one more." <laughs> right, and it's related to Johnny Sako too. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah, I, I don't think I've I don't think I've seen that. I haven't either, but I do know that Mechanicong from King Kong Escapes is mm-hmm. very much an influence on this. The, some of the the fact that he's a robot double of the main monster, and some of the ways that Mechagodzilla is shot was that was how Mechanicong was shot in King Kong Escapes. You know, like the the little like the the shot of where the camera pans up to from mech, from the feet up to the head mm. that's kind of become one of the trademark mecha godzilla shots because you'll see that in the subsequent uh-huh. films with mecha godzilla yeah. that was done with mechanicong first so mm. you know things like that so you have you know you have king kong escapes 
to thank for that. But so, but it seems like a natural progression, honestly, by this point. Plus, Nakano also said that if you do that, it would also be a little more cost effective. Mm. <laughs> we could save a little bit of money by doing that, which is kind of interesting because Mechagodzilla, that suit looks really well detailed. It even has MG on it. I know. Uh, it's on uh, the sides of the uniform, and you have to look at it really closely, like just pause it and look yeah. for it. But it is there, and I, I really like that little touch. Yeah, and I actually really I like the design of this one. The later Mechagodzillas look more streamlined, but this one has this very... It's a bit more alien. Yeah, this has this very angular, sharp-edged, mm-hmm. intimidating, old-school look to it. And I think it's it's very fitting. So, I mean, it's I might say it's not my favorite Mechagodzilla design, but I, it's one that I really, really like. Yeah, I like I have it too. to say. It's good. I like the original ones for a lot of these. Yeah. <laughs> he looks very much like he was kind of pieced together. You can kind of see the, the rivets and the seams a little bit. It's not as mm-hmm. slick yeah. as the later ones are. But... I would have to say probably my favorite scene in this movie, and it actually, for a lot of fans, it's the the highlight of, at least the special effects highlight of really the entire 70s run, is that oil refinery. Yeah. That thing is spectacular. It's a really spectacular scene. Yeah. That's, Godzilla comes out of the ground. Godzilla comes out of the ground, <laughs> comes out of the building. It's probably, that's probably the, that's the best miniature set in this entire movie and that's it's at night so it has this great atmosphere yeah it has the godzilla versus gigan thing going on yeah and that is real fire yeah and there's a lot of it um and those are real explosions and i'm just i'm just sitting there i'm just thinking it's like man can you imagine trying to coordinate all of that and making sure that your your actors don't catch on fire. I mean, it's just, yeah, I it's know. Not imagine like they, being the safety guy that worked on some of this <sighs> stuff. You'd be nervous. I, the, those suit actors had balls. Uh, that's really all I got to say. I mean, cause that's real fire. It's not like they digitally add that, added that in later. No, that's real. The explosion from the two rays, uh, butting up against each other. That was really spectacular too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And actually, uh, what if it's, it's a, this is a shot that I always, I always remember when I see it every time I watch this movie, but I always forget about it before it comes up. I love that shot when Godzilla is standing up after he got knocked down by Mechagodzilla. And as he's standing, there's an explosion behind him Mm. and he's doing his little, his tough guy pose. And I'm just thinking that is an amazing shot right there. That's just, that's like, that just screams hero shot. I mean, in context, Godzilla's, outmatched and he's about to get his butt kicked but that one shot you know it just he just looks awesome at that point and i'm just like it's the sort of thing that fukuda was really good at doing Mm -hmm. the more i've delved into this and the more attention that i've paid to these things thanks to this podcast the more i notice things like that i really like fukuda the way he puts the film together how he tells a story with the picture and then, like, he tells the story with the camera. I mean, you know, like, he's just really good at putting good shots together. He knows how to make it look good. He knew the technique, and it, he learned how to how to make everything look. I mean, it, we, this look goes all the way back to Eberra, though. I mean, he did a great job with that. 
just a and just to backtrack a, a real quick here on uh, with Mecha Godzilla. <laughs> I can't believe I never made this connection, but I, I saw some stuff from other fans who were saying that Mecha Godzilla in this movie is essentially the Terminator. Because you have this huge robot chassis that's covered in skin as a disguise, and it gets chipped away as the movie goes, and then it all gets burnt off in fire. Mm-hmm. So, And if you've seen the original Terminator from 84, which this movie predates by 10 years, the same thing happens. So now in my head, at least the Showa era Mechagodzilla, I now picture him talking like Arnold Schwarzenegger all the time. Hasta la vista, Godzilla. <laughs> it is an assassin, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like they, well, it's just like the, in uh, Godzilla versus Gigan, too. It's the express purpose of the plan is to destroy Godzilla. And then, you know, Godzilla is the linchpin to everything. Mm-hmm. I'm also a big fan of Mecha Godzilla's ray, the rainbow colored. Yep. Like that, From the eyes. Yeah, that mm-hmm. was a nice effect. It is it really ju- pretty? Is it just me, or is every part of Mechagodzilla's body a weapon? Essentially, <laughs> they really they really thought of a lot of different ways to. Yeah, because he has finger missiles, and he's got missiles in his knees and, and his shield, toes. The yeah, the thing, shield the that he does by spinning and, his yeah. head. And then the eye rays. He doesn't have the flamethrower though. After the disguise goes away. Mm. Well, but he, but he has a missile launcher in his mouth too, and then and there's just weapons all over. Yeah, and then we can't we can't forget about Mecha Godzilla's trademark attack <laughs> because it comes back in every Mecha Godzilla movie, which uh, I like to think was probably named by Nero from the 2009 Star Trek movie. Fire everything. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The, there's a part there where it's just insane the amount of output of weapon weaponry. It's like an endless supply of weapons. Yeah. And he can fly, which that's yeah, convenient. Yeah, it's a boot. Yeah, that's convenient, too. He can go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a, he's a walking army is really what he is. <laughs> it's really great that Hirata and Koizumi came back for this movie. It was really good. Yeah, I, they were welcome faces to see. It had been a long time since either one of them had appeared in any of these movies. And it makes sense because... It's the 20th anniversary, so you want to bring back familiar faces. Yeah, and we have a one. professor character, and so... Yeah, here, here's Harada playing another scientist, another guilt-ridden scientist at that. With no eye patch. No eye patch this time, yeah. But also we had Kenji Sahara back, too. That's yeah, right. he, had a, so he had a small part. We, yeah, so um, he was the ship captain. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we... It's nice to see familiar faces again. One thing I thought was funny was the the simian falling into the ocean, and he lets out that scream. It's just funny. <laughs> like that part makes me laugh every time. Oh, from on the ship. It was like, yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's just funny. <laughs> Whatever technology they're using to disguise themselves, it magically undoes whenever they're injured. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, I I don't know the. How exactly that's all supposed to work. Yeah, I don't know either. They never really it, it explain just, it. It's all alien and it's just like destroy all monsters. We're not supposed to ask too many questions about where things come from. Yeah, although the from, from what I can remember, they, they explain the simians more in the next movie. Let's move on to uh, King Ushiza because I, I really like referring to him as King Ushiza rather than King Caesar. I That just never... 
really stuck with me. That was actually something that came about because the dubbers misheard the name when they listened to the original version. And then when it got dubbed, it sounded like King Caesar. And then that eventually turned into Caesar, like Julius Caesar in the 90s. And it's it's stuck. It's kind of become the official English name of the monster. Yeah, I'm just totally not on board with that. I just prefer King Ushiza. I mean, it's sort of like, sort of like if we called King Ugeter a King George <laughs> or something. Like, it just doesn't, it just sounds weird. I'm like, King George, okay, that elicits a specific thing in my brain about you know king george the third specifically do you and like king's king caesar i'm like okay so now i'm thinking of julius caesar this isn't working do you realize also the irony of the fact that you named a dragon george mm-hmm. <laughs> as in saint george and the dragon just saying, probably one of the most famous dragon slaying stories in all of folklore. <laughs> also, King Ushiza, like, Shiza's lion. And yeah. So, technically, King Lion or Lion King. So, yep. we have that going lion on. Lion King. Yeah, we have that going on, too. We have Lion King defending <laughs> Okinawa. <laughs> I just like King Ushiza. It just sounds a lot better. And, like, Shiza, I'm like, okay, Japanese for lion. There, I'm thinking of lion as opposed to a leader of. Uh, of a for you know of, of a country, calling calling him the Lion King now suddenly makes me think they should have played Circle of Life instead of having Nami sing to wake him up. Now that would have been cool. <laughs> Someone out there, if you're a YouTuber, make that happen. I want that fan edit. What's with his eye reflection ability? He absorbs the one attack in one eye. And then it comes out the other eye. I think that's what it's supposed to be, but yeah, it's ever since I was it's like a mirror. Effect. Yeah, but ever since I was a kid, the way I, had, I think it's supposed to be it goes in one eye, it comes out the other. But I've mm-hmm. always seen it as it goes in, like the two eye beams go into each one eye, and then they reflect back. Mm. So it's not like it goes in one, comes out the other. But it's a handy thing to have. I think it's derived from the fact that. King Caesar was inspired by Shisa statues, which you you see something of a Shisa statue in this. And it ends up on top of the temple. Yeah. And they were essentially gargoyles meant to ward off evil spirits and keep goodness in. So he is warding off stuff by reflecting attacks on yeah. them. Yeah. Well, that's kind of cool. Also, seeing King Ushiza reminds me of War of the Gargantuas, the suit. It and does. The look and the, and the way... Uh, King of Shiza fights. He's very that. agile. Uh, it reminded me of the the two Frankenstein quote unquote monsters in uh, War of the Gargantuas. It's can, sort of the same feel. You can tell that that suit is much lighter than any of the yeah. any of the other ones. Is he because that actor can move around mm-hmm. quite a bit? Yeah, and, you need some dexterity when you're inside a costume like that. Yeah, and I think it helps to make King Caesar very unique. You know, he's because he's very agile and he's fast. And the other than his eye reflecting, he the, he doesn't really have any superpowers. He fights tooth and claw. Mm-hmm. I love seeing him fight Mechagodzilla because of that. Yeah, it's physical against versus all of these weapons and all of these um, futuristic methods of fighting. Yeah. And, and like cutting the rock. Yeah, half, you know that he's hiding behind. It was just stuff like that. And then that. he's kind of looking like, "Oh crap!" Yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually I love 
this image is just ingrained in my mind. I love the scene right after he's woken up. There's no music playing, and you just hear him kind of grunting a little bit, and Mechagodzilla's almost there. Then King Caesar just turns around, and his ears mm-hmm. just perk right up yeah. like he's a dog. Mm. I was like, it looks so like a dog uh, just going at attention. Like, oh, mm-hmm. there you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think for like the like some, like younger audiences too. I think the, I think King Ushiza combined with Mechagodzilla, those are things that kids would like quite a bit. I think. Oh, I'm sure they would have. And it's because it's so, a robot, and yeah, robots were big on the on the you know, the kids' TV shows, superhero mm-hmm. shows, and yeah, and, and King Ushiza is just kind of wild and fun, sort of idea yeah he doesn't he looks kind of mean but not so mean that kids wouldn't like him he they'd probably look at him and think that he's he's like my dog back home yeah king ushiza is really the the send up about okinawa at the end of the day because of the the big relation to all of the okinawan traditions and everything yeah this attack in angerus we finally get to mention about what we mentioned in beast the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms episode uh, that also had King Kong. Like the, this is where we get that King Kong moment in the fight is when uh, Mechagodzilla and Anchorus are fighting, and then the we have the jaw being pulled apart. I know, which is echoing uh, King Kong. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of difficult to watch. I remember when I when I saw it the, the pretty first brutal. Time. Yeah, yeah, it's brutal. In fact. There's a lot of things in this movie that are just really brutal. This is probably the goriest Showa-era Godzilla movie out of all of them, really. Yeah, we have yeah all the blood spraying out of Godzilla's neck and everything. Yeah, it was... It's, it's more it's more than Godzilla versus Gigan. Oh, yeah, way more. And in yeah, this one, you had the, the jaw broken, and it's just... Oh! <laughs> it's difficult to watch, because I love Angerus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, love, I know the audience probably goes through a little bit of... Yeah, conflict with that. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah. Did. It's a monster fight, but I don't know if we wanted to see. Well, that it's it's shocking at first because it's Godzilla and Angerus are fighting, so it's like a throwback to raids again, actually. Mm-hmm. In that regard, yeah, there's a lot of throwbacks actually, like nice little references to you know things, which actually makes sense now that I think about it. With this being the 20th anniversary film, uh, but I'm one of those fans personally who doesn't think that. Angerus died because of that. I think he was hurt very badly and ran away. He retreats, right. He retreats. I mm-hmm. think he was fine. Yeah. He just was probably holed up recovering for quite some time. At about 27.30 into the movie, 27 and a half minutes in, we get our first glimpse of the head bad guy and his silver-suited henchman. And his, it looks like he's the standard-issue bad guy and he gets his standard issue bad guy control room. And then he has the bonus bad guy cigar in his mouth and the even bigger bonus of his own snifter of brandy <laughs> or whatever the brown spirit is, you know, whatever, yeah. brandy, whiskey, etc. The head spaceman always has really good taste. And it's like a really short introduction when they show him really briefly there yeah. during the battle at the refinery, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, yeah. and they pan and they go to him and then they come right back to that. And I'm like, what did I just see? <laughs> was, what was he wearing? <laughs> what did, what was that? Hang on. And I just, <laughs> he's one of the more sillier villains for sure. I mean, what the cigars and the brandy, that's just like, <laughs> 
out of left field. And like it's almost you must like, have been staying on Earth quite a while, and it developed some, well, yeah, uh, some very sophisticated tastes. Yeah, he he must have read some magazine articles or something like that. Like and like it's it's sort of reminded me of Prince of Space <laughs> when th- that line that Kevin has, and he says we're alien except for our Chippendale furniture because <laughs> yeah, those chairs they're sitting in. And I absolutely love that line. And, and But it reminded me of this. It's like, we're alien except for our brandy and cigars. <laughs> it's like, okay. okay. This is different. He's, our head bad guy is a very odd head bad guy in this. He's kind of James Bondian in a way. Uh-huh. A bit of a Bond villain. Silverfinger. Silverfinger. <laughs> I like it. But I don't know. He's... He's a bit more he's just, not the kind just of guy a straight I'd, up supervillain. He's not the kind of guy I'd want to have a cigar and brandy with. Because <laughs> I'd probably end up being his prisoner in that situation. Well, yeah, that was the whole point. Thrown in the, yeah. thrown in the steam room. <laughs> yeah, the sauna of doom, as yeah. I like to call it. Yeah, steam room of death. <laughs> it's like those those parts in movies and, and cartoons and stuff. I particularly remember Rugrats and they get caught. They get locked inside the steam room for like half an hour and, and then they finally somebody opens it up and they all just come out and they're like oh my god and they're dying and practically from this but i just, it, it is a very odd villain setup with the the methods that he uses to to try to get rid of people as well as the the agents that he has that are I was just running thinking. around trying to steal the statue it's 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 James Bondian but I almost, it's almost like it's a spoof of James Bond. Oh, yeah, almost. Because it's just so outlandish. In, that is, some of it's intentionally funny, Some I would yeah. say, and some of it's unintentionally yeah. funny. I think the idea was that, at least this was my thought, probably wasn't in the creator's minds, was that this steam room where they scold people to death was supposed to be like a death chamber from World War II or something, and you know they're they're throwing them in there to be executed, but instead of gassing them, they're they're scalding them. Well, it's sort of something like, like that. People get put in cham- in like an empty chamber, and then it gets gradually filled up with water as the villain yeah. sits there in in his chair, going "Ho ho ho, I got you." Yeah, actually, did you notice that he doesn't really do the evil laugh thing very much? When he does, it's kind of subtle. Next movie, we get an overdose of that. This time around, we don't get it. He's, yeah, he's more. This guy's more subdued compared to the dude in the next one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but still. When it's funny that you bring up that it was like a James Bond spoof because when he, when the guy puts our heroes into that into that steam room and walks away, all I keep thinking is, I'm going to put them into an overly elaborate death sequence, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, like from Austin Powers. I'm just like, can't you just shoot them? But yeah, and everybody just... comes in and is like, oh, just shoot them already, and then but then we, boy, they doubling back to Godzilla versus Gigan. You know how they handled that, the the the, the taller guy was like, well, come on into my control room and I will explain everything. Like <laughs> this big exclamation point on the, and now I will tell you everything. Because villains love to monologue. We've established this. Yeah, I mean, watch that, The Incredibles. We know this. You think they just want to made a video to, for people to find later. This just them gloating about <laughs> everything rather than just getting one, getting their arch nemesis and then saying, I'm going to explain everything to just you. <laughs> but yeah, this this is... 
kind of like a spoof of James Bond in a way. And like and like many 70s films, we have Interpol agents. Yep, Interpol was a thing. Yeah, which makes me think of MST3K's Writing with Death. <laughs> have you seen that? I think I have, <gasps> at least part of it. Oh, so, yeah, you got Interpol because 70s. But yeah. it's very interesting in that respect. And like, I do like our main agent, though. Our Interpol agent. He he's a good actor. BA. And yeah, he is he does a good job. And I've heard like, some I've heard some fans joke that the they think that the two Interpol agents in this should have gotten a Simon and Simon style spinoff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that which actually would have been really fun. I there was a point in my notes where I referred to that one guy as proto Japanese Neo. <laughs> Yeah. He's got the trench coat and the glasses and, you know, even. <laughs> and he's on the plane and he just turns around and he's like, well, hello. And they're hello. like, who are you? What do you want? I was like, what are you talking about? We're talking about black mountains in the sky. I'm like, well, he's like, oh, yeah, I know all about this stuff. And <laughs> he's like, this is not weird at all. <laughs> Can you go away now, please? Although I have to say with uh, with our head villain. I've always been particularly fond of his little dark patch. It's like oh, this weird yeah. birthmark thing. Uh-huh. It made him visually at least more distinct. Mm. Otherwise, the all of these guys look like they got their fashion sense from the from the Keylocks mm-hmm. with the silvery disco outfits. Yeah. And the same thing we same thing in uh, Godzilla versus Megalon. We had the silvery Outfits. It's almost like they recycled the outfits from Megalon and just put it into this. Like well, they had the we, same material. Yeah, with a little some touch-ups here and there, maybe. Yeah, it's interesting that we have a sort of theme going on with this now. Well, At least you don't have anybody in a bathrobe this time. <laughs> tunic, or no, not a tunic. <laughs> toga. Toga. Yeah, toga. <laughs> yeah, no, no togas this time. So who gets killed at the end of this, by the way? Oh, of the human characters? Yeah, because it seems like Hirata and the Interpol agent... Did they survive? They when the when never, the main when the enemy's lair explodes in spectacular fashion. I've always fashion, interpreted it. I don't that, see them after that. We don't. Although I've always interpreted it as that they did get out, because it mm-hmm. seemed like they got out to me. I mean, that's a big explosion, but this is movie. There logic, wasn't an implication that they were killed. The the but only there wasn't thing, an implication that they weren't either. Yeah, the only thing we get is one of the characters tells the the prof- I think it's the professor's daughter. Yeah. He said, your father has achieved a great victory today, but that's it. We don't mm-hmm. know if they made it out or not. I've always there wasn't assumed that they implied, did. Yeah, there wasn't an implied sacrifice. Which, if if that did happen, nice job, Harada. You keep playing the self-sacrificial scientist. <laughs> True. Yeah, the, yeah, there'd be an echo of the original Godzilla in that. <laughs> well, and he's also a guilt-ridden scientist in this one, too. Right. You yeah. know, where in, the, in Godra, it was... I have created this awful thing, this oxygen destroyer, or in this one, it's, I sold my soul to the devil and helped the enemy by fixing their robot, because apparently they're not smart enough to fix their own dang robot. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I was like, did they not send any electrical engineers in this little platoon of invaders? (laughs) They just have guys that will follow everybody around trying to get the statue and then fail miserably nearly every time, and then... Well, while they're running away and trying to escape, they throw all those lawn chairs at him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying that Kuronuma is probably sitting there thinking, huh? Note to self: when I in, on the next planet I invade, bring electrical engineers. <laughs> this is 
a, a little bit unique in that we have characters who are archaeologists. Mm-hmm. But I actually like the that angle. It makes sense, actually, given the time that this was made, because they're exploring things in Okinawa. So that would have been, you know, a fairly new thing, and they're they're finding out all this stuff. They're kind of the outsiders figuring yeah. stuff out. So it's a good way for the to lead the audience into there. But I feel like, much like with Rodan, this this movie has so many characters comparatively to to of the most other of the other movies. Yeah. And honestly, when I, I was sitting there, I was thinking to myself, you know what? You could probably cut out at minimum two of these characters and not really lose anything. Like the archaeologist brother, what does he do other than get captured once and then sort of help at the end? Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like we have a too many cooks in the kitchen thing with the story. Yeah, that's doesn't seem as unified. It's as not the, as, as unified, but yeah. So there, like I said, there were probably a few characters that you could have done away with in it. And, and it's it almost like fine. some of the characters we just get to see things from their point of view, and that's it. Yeah, like that's what they. That's what the characters are for, and that's really about it. Yeah, I mean, and then the the professor's daughter doesn't really do anything other than get captured and be used for blackmail. <laughs> I mean, Essentially, yeah. I, it's like she exists just to give the professor a motivation to help the Sibians. Well, that's better than Megalon. Was you know not a single woman saying a word. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so. Like, <laughs> This is a good idea to maybe have a woman in this yeah. movie instead of... But then, ironically, so you have this overabundance of characters, but then there are certain scenes that you kind of hinted at it a little bit where there seems to be a weird absence of extras, like the cruise ship. Yeah. I, yeah I, when the whole time I'm thinking, <laughs> why is does, is everybody asleep on this cruise ship and nobody sees two guys, including one that looks three-quarters <laughs> monkey, running around and they're throwing lawn chairs at each other and pointing guns and... And knife fighting and all of this stuff. Like, nobody sees this? The ship isn't that big either. <laughs> I was like, is everyone asleep? Everyone's be- it's like, It looks like it's like, I don't know, like the break of dawn at five o'clock in the morning. Everybody's or favorite TV show must have been on. And- <laughs> They're all watching Game of Thrones. Yeah. That's what I- <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of like when we went to G-Fest, you know, about three o'clock in the afternoon, everyone is gone. And we're like, yeah, everyone's going home to watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> Can I vent for just two things? Oh, what exactly? They're, they're not. Bi- they're not. It's not a big deal. But it's. Oh, it's, are you nitpicking? I know. I'm, I'm, I'm having. I have one pet peeve. One of my pet peeves, at least, with these movies is the tire squealing in, in, in the show <laughs> series because it, it, they use it a lot. But in this movie, it's a whole whole lot, and I just. Uh, and it's the same sound too. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah, oh, please stop. At least it's not. It, at least it's not as egregious as Megalon. There's a lot more uh, car chases uh, in that one. Yeah, that one's pretty egregious, but it's not even a big thing. But I mean, it's just. I'm sure that somebody else out there might have, be a little bit annoyed by that. But then the, the only other thing that I have is the mon- the whole thing with the kaiju getting knocked by something and then they they fall backwards and fall down. That the the whole stun. Hit stun, fall backwards thing. Yeah. I just uh, do something else. <laughs> Did you do know something it? else. Yes, the monster fights entertain me and stuff, but that, eh. but yeah, this, this is, these aren't like uh, major problems that I have. It's not like I'm going to sit around and write an IMDb interview that says the movie, it was ruined because Wait, of this. That movie database? Yeah, oh. that movie database. <laughs> 
overall, though, I still love this movie, though. It's it's great. I mean, I don't it's know what so the Godzilla fun. series would be like without Mechagodzilla. It's or so this much movie fun. particularly. That, yeah. that sets everything in motion. Yeah. It's a very integral part of the, the Godzilla um, universe. Yeah. And I have to say, seeing this movie, I remember when I got the DVD of this. Because you have to understand, I, I grew up watching this on VHS. And that VHS was horribly, 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 horribly cropped. Pan and scan. Pan and scan. And it was an (laughs) awful, awful pan and scan. So when I got the DVD of this, more than any other Godzilla movie, seeing it in widescreen for the first time, it was just my eyes were just open so much. I was like, I miss so much. Pan and scan just... It totally wouldn't work for many of these uh, Showa-era movies. No. Starting with Mothra. No. And, I mean, you can say what you want about the about the production values of this movie, but when you get, you know, that nighttime battle, when you get to the climax with all of the, the animation and the bright colors and and all of that, it looks so much better in widescreen. I just, I can't say that enough. And these kaiju battles, by the way, look really nice at night. Yes, with they all do. these explosions, the darkness actually works to an advantage. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people complain that uh, setting stuff at night is a, is a cheat in special effects, but I think here it creates a wonderful atmosphere. Yeah, it sort of makes sense that kaiju would come attack at night and fight at night or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, it works. I very rather much than, enjoyed it. Rather than oh, everybody's at work. <laughs> Everyone's at this work. Doesn't doesn't work as well. But the night, the the effects show up beautifully. All the explosions are extra nice. It 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 would look different if it was against a blue sky background. It just wouldn't look as impressive, especially all the fire. Brian, how familiar are you with uh, anime series like Dragon Ball Z? I would be lying if I said I knew a lot about it. Okay, but you're probably familiar with the kind of overpowered anime hero tropes and all of that yes that's what i think of when i watch godzilla in this movie (laughs) Mm -hmm. i especially the scene after the mysterious do you hear godzilla and he's standing around on an island he's getting zapped by lightning and he's like "Uh uh-huh and then there's a recharge moment yeah and his spines all light up and stuff and yeah, it was like I, they, when they get the power up. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm an thinking anime. to myself, uh, it's like, I just want to get the, the sound bite from Deadpool uh, in uh, the Marvel versus Capcom 3 game where he says, anime power up time. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's essentially what it is. And then when he gets into the final battle and he's he's bleeding all over the place, he's been harpooned and blasted uh-huh. and all of that. And he gets up and he's like, Hurr. oh, yeah. Like he even does a little arm cross thing uh-huh. and does that. And he's like, you know, and I'm just thinking back to when I was a teen and I had friends who were into Dragon Ball Z and I'm just like, I don't get this show. And they, they do this thing where they stand around for five, ten episodes being herniated and you know, constipated for ten episodes. And then they suddenly power themselves up and to go fight the villain. Thank God it doesn't take nearly that long. Mm. But that's essentially what is Godzilla becomes a DBZ character in this and invents this new superpower out of nowhere. I mean, I wasn't joking when I said this was Magneto versus the Terminator. Yeah, the magnetism. (laughs) I know. It's like, did he know that was going to happen? Was he like, crap, I just got my butt kicked by a robot. I know, I'll turn myself into a magnet. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Did you know that was going to happen, or was it just a lucky happenstance? 
And yeah, and that's why when when people pick on the Godzilla versus Hetero with Godzilla flying, I'm like, well, yeah, but the magnetism things there too, and all these other various things he does in these the, all these '70s movies, he's a superhero. From he's been superpowers all the way through to the end of the show series. We we got. Uh, definite superhero vibes going on. It's funny we didn't even begin talking about Godzilla until now in this episode, but it's because he's the same Godzilla. Yeah. All, th- all throughout this whole uh, 70s decade. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, he's he's about the same, but he, he has yet another ability that he just whips out of nowhere and I'm not, I'm not sure it's if it's cool. I'm not sure if it's, it's something idea. that came about because of those lightning strikes or if he's just like, this is a power I have always had, but have never used. Yeah. I don't know. I've always this interpreted like the flying thing. Yeah, it's, I've always for one and then just. Yeah, I've, gone. I've always interpreted it that it there was something that came about because of all of the weird lightning strikes. I mean, it was still that was probably why it was a one time thing. Oh, and that's when you're in a superhero genre, you can you can do that. You can create powers and yeah recharge them easily and it certainly makes sense and it's actually pretty clever you know the i i need to keep the robot here i can't get close to him right so i'm gonna bring him over here to me he can't shoot at me because apparently becca godzilla doesn't have any weapons in the back Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you have this very satisfying moment when godzilla just goes all mortal combat on him and Mm -hmm. just rips the head off is it great effects mm-hmm. during that part too? It's very uh, convincing. It looks right. Yeah, and you can tell he was working hard to get that. Mechagodzilla is fighting him the entire time because he's not mm-hmm. pulling the head easy. Mm-hmm. He's working really hard to get that head around, and then just and then he yeah. has to shove it right off. Yeah, when you do that in a in a movie, you have to make sure it looks right, and and they they did nail it. Yeah. So I would probably rank this as probably in the top 10 of Godzilla's best kills. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It's, it's, a, it's a very memorable one. Mm-hmm. I think my favorite Godzilla moment in this, though, is when Godzilla shows up after that, that awesome reveal of him coming over the hill, and he's just P.O.'d. Like, you could tell he's yeah, just he's like, ready to I am ready to tear you apart, mm. you he fires his atomic ray at Mechagodzilla and Mechagodzilla dodges by taking off. And then he does this little, you know, like, or he just like, he's snapping his finger, like, Oh, I missed. Yeah. And, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, well, according to the Shoba gene in Geeter, the three headed monster, he swears like a sailor. So I'm thinking, oh, there's some, probably some choice four letter words coming out of Godzilla's mouth right about then. Yeah. And, <laughs> We 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 backpedaled, so we 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 don't have anybody talking, this, so we can't tell. But he's definitely doing the the motions uh, and very 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 human like emotions that he uh, is displaying. I love it. So the two Okinawans that are in this movie that have descended from the Azumi royal family, we um, in ancient times when mainland Japan tried to invade Okinawa. King Ushiza would save Okinawa and the royal family. And that was the way that worked. And so that's uh, that's going to lead into our part three, where we discuss Okinawa, because this movie is very heavy on Okinawa. We're going to discuss sort of where that goes, and that'll be, uh, that'll be next. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio.
in part three of the podcast, we uh, choose an issue or issues that uh, was either brought up by the film directly or was going on in Japan at the time the film was released. And so for this, it's definitely something that the movie brought up, and that is Okinawa. And so uh, we haven't had anything really with, with Okinawa up until now. I mean, we've, we've mentioned we've it talked a few about times. the occupation yeah. and stuff in previous episodes, but the movies have never uh, gone into this area. No. And so this is the uh, first time we've seen this. And when I was doing research on this and looking through Japanese history, immediately it popped out, oh, yeah, the reversion of Okinawa to Japan from the U.S. occurred in 1972. Two years before this movie. Right. And so that is uh, definitely recent history. And so that definitely qualifies for what was going on in Japan at the time, because this uh, this had just taken place and was very likely a huge news uh, item for the Japanese. Because And it also relates to uh, the national pride, of, so to speak, of, of having something returned to you again. And, and we've we did mention this in uh, Destroy All Monsters, where we talked about Agasawara, aka yeah. the Bonin Islands, reverted back to Japanese control there. But this is a, a lot bigger deal, and uh, Okinawa was made a, a prefecture, officially. And it's, uh, it's part of the larger region of uh, Kyushu, at least administratively. So it's, uh, it's very uh, timely of an issue. And so this, this made me wonder, okay, let's go into all of this that happens with Okinawa in this movie and, and look at the history and then see what we can come up with. And uh, I was very interested in what I found and the research that I did in Okinawa. It's a very interesting subject. Yeah. I have to say when I was preparing for this podcast, this has become one of a couple of episodes where the research is just absolutely fascinating. And I just found myself just diving down numerous rabbit holes of information related to Okinawa. It's so interesting. Well, first let's do some really quick basics about Okinawa. So like what I have here is that Okinawa, I did the, the measurements of how far mainland Japan is from Okinawa. And I, then I went to the map and I sort of messed around with cities and tried to find mm -hmm. a, a rough number, which would be between those two. And I came up with uh, the distance between uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles. About so, 400 miles? Yeah. Uh, for 450, maybe, or so. Mm -hmm. It was made a colony, uh, sort of a, basically a military colony, after the war ended. And then it was uh, quite a while between then and 1972. So it was, a, it was under U.S. military control for quite a while. Uh, about 27 years? Mm hmm It should also be noted that Okinawa is about 300 miles away from China. Mm -hmm. And Okinawa has had a lot of ties with China over the years. Yes, and of course it was its own separate kingdom before this, the Ryukyu Kingdom. And it, it included more than Okinawa is the uh, various the islands The Ryukyu it. Islands. Uh -huh. Yeah, they were their own little kingdom. Around 1609... The Japanese mainland went into the Ryukyu Islands and did this more or less almost bloodless takeover. And they took the king away to Edo, which is now called Tokyo, and held him prisoner there for two years and then returned him. They allowed the Ryukyu kingdom to continue to exist, but it the uh, Okinawa and all of them existed as a as more or less a tributary state of the Japanese mainland, which was a little bit weird because they had already been something of a tributary state for the many dynasties over in China. Okinawa and all the rest of those islands ended up serving as kind of this weird legal loophole so China and Japan could trade with each other. But then in 1872, four years after the Meiji Restoration... The Japanese annexed Okinawa and the rest of the Ryukyu Islands. 
and more or less claimed them as being part of Japan. And then seven years later, they established the Okinawa Prefecture and did away with the Ryukyuan monarchy in Shuri Castle in Naha, which was the capital. And the, the last Ryukyuan king was Shotai. He was forcibly relocated to Tokyo and made a marquee of the Meiji system of, of peerage. It was their little way of trying to make it up to him. But then for that entire era between that and World War II, the Japanese worked really hard, really, really hard at suppressing Okinawan culture. Yes, forced assimilation, uh, sort of like the same thing that was done with uh, Korea during the, the occupation of Korea by the Japanese, which was uh, have them learn Japanese and start uh, washing away the culture. It is also similar, I would think, to uh, Russification during the yeah. Soviet Union era. Yeah, and this was systemic. Uh, they were everything, language, religion, yes, hardcore, all of that. Yeah. It was they were getting rid of it. It's about deleting the identity. Yeah, of of, of the uh, Ryukyu people. Yeah, yeah, and the probably one of the, I guess you could say, more egregious examples of this that I found was Japan introduced public education to Okinawa, but in those schools, the students were only allowed to speak Japanese, but it was specifically the Tokyo dialect of Japanese. So there were policies being enacted by at this point to create a standard form of Japanese, which was the Tokyo dialect, because you have to understand the Japanese language. These people were all usually very isolated. So there were multiple dialects that had sprung up, but they're trying to create a, a unified language, I guess you could say. So through what, indoctrination, through indoctrination. So what they did was they had this thing called a dialect card. It's like this little plaque and you had to wear it around your neck. If uh, a student had to, if he was caught speaking Okinawan, well, then what ended up happening is one student speak Okinawan, he would wear it until another student spoke Okinawan, and then he took it off and put it on him. And then that continued throughout the entire day, and then whoever was wearing it at the end was punished by the teacher. Ugh. Yeah, so this is a rather, a rather extreme measures that are being taken. Yeah. Speaking of these kinds of extreme measures, we have the Battle of Okinawa, and that was where uh, one-third of Okinawans' civilians died in the war overall, but uh, a huge number of those, uh, that was in the Battle of Okinawa itself. They were used as human shields by Japanese troops. Middle school boys were put in uniforms and put on the front lines against their will. Uh, Civilians were drafted. Uh, This is a... Very, very, very extreme battle. It was one of the most uh, dangerous and extreme battles in all of World War II. Uh, There were 1,500 severe kamikaze attacks. It was an extremely ferocious battle. Uh, Lots of suicides during the battle as well. Okinawa was uh, one of the biggest flashpoints of of the entire of of, of the Pacific War. It was a long battle, too. Over two months. uh Uh-huh. And the casualties were high on both sides. Yes. And, it was bloody. And Japan, uh, the Japanese Imperial forces were broadcasting to all of the Okinawans saying the American soldiers are so brutal that you, the best thing to do is to just kill yourself now. And so there were all of these suicides that were taking place, like whole families committing suicide because they were that afraid 
of the barbarians that were coming for them. And meanwhile, it was the barbarians were the ones that were telling them to do this. But the, but we understand this was a holy war that was being fought, and this was you know the, the most extreme measures of just about any battle that took place. And so this is possibly the worst of war. And, well, since it was a war and both sides were so intent on winning, especially the Japanese, considering they had an entire element of faith along with it. And, and so this is understandably a, an extremely huge flashpoint. After the war, all of the bases were built and Okinawa was made into essentially a military colony. And this was partially to project American power for sure, but also it was meant to basically secure the region. And this was an attempt to keep things under wraps, I would say. It was also used in the operations in Korea and Vietnam, uh, various other things. The, Which we've mentioned before. Yeah, the bases were um, very integral to the actual American military presence. And uh, I'm sure you ran into this figure that 75% of all U.S. military uh, personnel stationed in Japan are stationed in Okinawa. Yes. Very United, huge United number. States Japan forces, 75% of them and, are in Little Okinawa. And 18% of the island of Okinawa itself is uh, taken up by military bases. Yeah. And we're talking about an island that's only about 70 miles long. Yeah. Not very big. Yeah, about se- and a, on average, about seven miles wide. This is not huge. And that's, that gets to a little bit about islands. Because island countries are difficult, but island states in general are hard, even if they are part of a larger entity or a commonwealth or an empire or what have you. Some, I mean, islands, it really depends on where that island is. You know, it can either become like a tourist gambling paradise island or it can become a capitalist utopia island islands like christmas island or easter island or all of these other places like that there's limited land limited resources limited people and it takes forever to get there and once you get there there's nothing to do and so what are you going to use it for you know well, some some of these like christmas island it was used for nuclear tests just because it was out in the middle of nowhere but i mean islands are a very tricky thing if they're in the right place strategically, then they matter. But if there's is just a tiny island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and a few hundred people living there, who wants to move there? Like, who wants to move to Easter Island? Like, there aren't very many Americans. If you went up to them and say, oh, you want to move to Easter Island? By the way, it's really far. They would probably say, uh, no, no, probably not. And there's also the Seatopians to worry about, you know? <laughs> yeah, they're under there. And who knows what they're going to do? But Okinawa, it's one of those places that is strategically located. Very important location. Uh, and it, it allows uh, whatever military is based there to project a lot of power from it. Uh, and it's in a more strategic place than Guam is. Guam's a little bit further out. But Okinawa is a, a poor prefecture already. It's the poorest of the 47 yeah, prefectures. It is. Uh, and so the, and the, then the military is one of the things that's actually bringing money into the place and has for a long time. That's just the nature of, of islands and how, how difficult they can be. A little bit about the genetics of the people of Japan. Um, Okinawans, they are considered a sort of subgroup of Japan, 
of the Japanese people, sort of like the Ainu. Uh, the the three, but the three groups, the Yamato Japanese, the Ainu, and the Ryukins, they the three groups are genetically different. But the the Ainu and the Ryukins are actually more genetically related to each other. And that's because they were natives to the islands. Yeah. And going with identity, the, the Ryukyuans, and especially Okinawans, they consider themselves from Okinawa first, and then Japan second. Mm. So they're kind of like Native Americans are in this country. Yeah, yeah, you can say that. That's pretty close. Um, Them and the Ainu. Yeah. The Ainu and the Okinawans have a common ancestor. There are more islander groups and less of the East Asian continental areas like Manchuria and Korea. But the Yamato Japanese, they considered Okinawan culture to be inferior. And that was where the and all the imperialism and the indoctrination and the forced assimilation all came from. It's important to talk about the the, the issue of identity because people who don't know any of this and they see this movie, I don't know if they're going to get it because... Like, like as far as the old man, when he yeah. says, uh, uh, Godzilla, please kill all the Japanese. Yeah. He and, says, avenge the wrongs uh, done to the Azumis right, by the, the Japanese. Right. The various, and he's referring to the various Japanese sins, so to speak, of, uh, of all the things they did. Mm-hmm. And so, but it's, and it's, it's just this short little moment and it's not like it's really concentrated on a lot, but there is that. That, those lines that he says. Yeah. And then his granddaughter is looking at him with the, the this sort of face like, oh, yeah, that. She looks very upset. Yeah, she's I not get... lamenting that he's saying that. No. I kind of wonder if if she doesn't necessarily agree with him, but given the situation that they were in, she's thinking he might be right. Mm. That was the impression I got from her because she's younger. She wasn't around. She definitely was born after the war. Yeah, she has a look on her face like, yeah, I got to hand it to you there. Yeah. He has a point. Yeah. And I was actually thinking, especially when I was reading this this stuff about the dialect card, and I looked at this old man and I'm thinking, he might actually, I mean, I'm totally reading into this, but he looks like he would have been old enough Oh, to have to, been yeah. one of those school kids, sure. When that was going on, oh yeah, he would he, have been. Uh, oh yeah, he would have been older than that, even. Yeah, he yeah. would have been. He looks like he would have been the right age. He could have been one of those school kids mm-hmm. who had to wear the dialect card and got punished by the teacher and everything. So the fact that he's expressing this hostility makes complete sense to me, right? And that's something. I mean, if you don't, you might, if you're just watching the movie for the first time, you probably have no idea what he might be talking about. Well, you, you, or it's just that, oh, well, they live on an island further away. That's probably all. Well, and, and the, <laughs> like, I, no, a little bit more than that. I can tell you, you know, the immediate context for me when I was watching this before I learned all this was that just what the old man is saying. He's just saying, oh, the Japanese did terrible things to the Azumi royal family. Damn them all. You know, that right. sort of a thing. And, you know, shake my fist at them and I hope they get their, I hope they get what they deserve. But knowing what the context is now, it makes so much more sense. It's a real life longstanding thing. And that, and to refer to all this stuff with just him saying that 
And the granddaughter doesn't even say anything, really. No. And all we get is that. And so the Japanese who were watching this when it came out, they understood instantly. Yeah. And I think, honestly, that's what makes the end of this movie. They don't really touch on it. But I think is what makes the, you know, the probably the last probably 15 minutes or so of this movie even more potent because I get the impression the old man is having to at least for a time set aside those grievances because the Japanese heroes are showing up and say, we have the statue. We can help you now. Yeah. And then Godzilla, the superhero, shows up. Yeah. And then fights alongside King Ushiza. And, and so then we get uh, that symbolism too of the japanese the japanese godzilla coming and joining forces well and even before then they had this nice thing where godzilla doesn't show up instantly for a while it's just king caesar Mm -hmm. holding off mechagodzilla or at least trying to by himself now as the fight goes on he starts to figure out he's a he's a bit outmatched but then again godzilla had also learned that he was outmatched Mm -hmm. and it takes the two of them to defeat right. Mechagodzilla together. Yeah, which obviously that's a function of the story. Yeah. One of the things that was really interesting for me when I was diving into this, because initially I was looking up the significance of the Shisa statue, and that led me then down this rabbit hole to look at Ryukyuan religion. Right, because there is an indigenous Ryukyuan religion. Yeah. And when I, uh, once I started diving into that, I realized suddenly more of this movie makes sense. In a nutshell, the native religion of Okinawa and the Ryukyu Islands is characterized by ancestor worship and relationship with the supernatural world. It's similar to, uh, to Shintoism, which is the state religion of Japan. But it, it used was, to be. Yeah, but it's also influenced by Polynesian religions, Chinese religions, and Buddhism. The thing that's most relevant to the film is one of the core beliefs of this religion is what is called onaragami, which is the belief that spiritual power is the domain of women and that women are spiritually superior to men. People with exceptional spiritual power are called kaminchu, and the vast majority of them are women, and they usually come from families with long lines of kaminchu and are usually the firstborn sons or daughters. They act as priests and priestesses who can sense, communicate with, and direct the power of kami. And there are two main subgroups of kaminshu. You have the noro, who are usually serve as priestesses for communities and are also uh, government officials. They seek, they either embody kami or seek their favor. And then you have what are called the yuta, which work as mediums and shamans to communicate with the kami, but they don't embody them. And a lot of times the Yuta are not seen in a very positive light. <laughs> and I bring this up because when I was reading this, I realized this is what Nami is, essentially. She's a Kaminshu because she has a, an apocalyptic vision. And she's doing the ceremony right at the beginning. And she's, she's doing the ceremony right, right at the beginning. Yeah, so she's probably one of those mm-hmm. community priestesses. Yeah, and from and descended from the royal family. So Yeah, on top so of she's got all of the the telltale signs of being a Kaminshu. She comes from uh, a powerful family. She's probably the firstborn. She's performing a ceremony, and she apparently has communion 
you know, uh, you know, a spiritual power to see the future and all that. Although I have to admit, I was thinking to myself, were there just a lot of Venusians and Martians that immigrated to Okinawa? Mm. You know, kind of thinking yeah. back on that a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> it would explain a few things in universe anyway. But so it's just, but I realized that's the sort of cultural thing that they were picking up on. And, yeah, and you wouldn't know that. If and you, I never you knew that. Watching it. I never knew that. I mm-hmm. just thought it's just a weird Japanese thing here at the beginning that she just magically has this vision and you just go with it. No, it's a part of Okinawan culture. So I mentioned I went down the religion road because I was looking up stuff on Shisa statues because that's where King Caesar gets his name. In the original Japanese as Brian, you've mentioned already. Can you can you tell our listeners the name again, real quick? King Ushiza. There you go. Yeah. It's derived from the Shisa statue. Now, Shisa statues. If you look at pictures of Okinawan architecture, you'll see these things. They're essentially gargoyles, is what they are. They're these lion dog statues that are erected over a lot of Okinawan houses and in Okinawan buildings. They have roots in the guardian lions from which you see in a lot of Chinese architecture and also the uh, and also the Komainu, which are lion dogs on the Japanese mainland. And the Komainu also serve as guards for the inner shrines of Shinto shrines. Different sources said different things about what the symbolism um, we've touched on it briefly uh, in part two about what the symbolism of the gargoyles is supposed to mean because the the Shisa statues either have their mouths open or they have them closed. Some sources say if the mouth is open, they're trying to scare the evil spirits away, while others say it's supposed to invite good spirits in, while others say if the mouth is closed, they're trying to scare the, the evil spirits away, or if the mouth is closed, they're trying to keep goodness inside. So it seems to depend on who you talk to, what that's supposed to mean. But the artifact that everyone is chasing after in this movie is essentially a Shisa statue which they use to reflect light on Earth, King Caesar. And then what happens? The priestess with the great spiritual power sings to the guardian god, and he awakens. It all plays into all of these different facets of Okinawan culture and religion, which I had no idea about until I started reading all of this stuff. And suddenly this movie made so much more sense. Yeah, the, the singing number comes out of left field, really, if you don't know the context of it. Yeah, well... And and it's like, why is she doing it? What's her... Well, and there's something else that's even, that's also really interesting along those lines. There's actually a legend in Okinawa about a king who wore a Shisa statue on a necklace around his neck. His kingdom was being plagued by a sea dragon. So he goes to a Noro priestess who tells him to take the Shisa statue and go meet the dragon on the beach. Well, he does that, and he holds the Shisa statue up, and the story goes that the statue roared so loud it shook everything, including the dragon. And then a rock fell out of the sky and pinned the dragon down by the tail, and eventually the dragon died. Hmm. So when I read that, I was thinking, that's kind of the end of this movie, isn't it? The beach shot and the priestess is there praying to praying for a monster to come help them. And it's, yes, a, it's very it, specifically on the beach that, that yeah, all happens. And it involves a Shisa statue and a mm-hmm. monster that's modeled after Shisa. 
and all of this stuff is just like it's just all converging mm-hmm. into this. It's just it just makes it that much more fascinating. The most immediate thing that uh, we should be talking about here is the actual reversion of Okinawa back to Japan. Because you have to you have to understand during the the twenty seven years that the U.S. was in control of Okinawa, it was highly Americanized. the The U.S. dollar was the accepted currency. The cars had to drive on the right side of the road as opposed on to uh, the left side of the road, like yeah, so, in mainland Japan. So like cultural imperialism. Yeah. So there's a lot of cultural things like that going there. And I I read that it took about five or six years before people started driving on the left side of the road in Okinawa. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how deep you know the this stuff was. Yeah, it's not for something them. you switch back to automatically. Yeah. But on June seventeenth. 1971, the United States and Japan signed what was called the Okinawa Reversion Agreement, where the U.S. relinquished all holdings given them by Article 3 of the Treaty of San Francisco, which included Okinawa. The treaty was signed by Secretary of State William P. Rogers on behalf of President Nixon and Foreign Minister Kichi Aichi in Tokyo on behalf of Prime Minister Isaku Sato. And they weren't in the same place when this happened. It was signed in Washington, D.C. and in Tokyo. And then it took effect May 15th, 1972. So took a little time between the signing and the actual reversion. It wasn't an instant process, though. The negotiations for this actually started a few years beforehand. Yes, uh, when there was a, a corresponding groundswell of uh, activism uh, in Japan and Okinawa on, on the fact that, you know, when is this going to finally take place already? Hurry up. Second. Yeah, it was a sense of urgency. There were a lot of very interesting details that went along with this agreement, though. In exchange for the islands being returned to Japan, uh, the United States got to maintain its bases on there because of their strategic importance. And the islands would be subject to any future agreements between the countries. The U.S. would repair damaged lands that, uh, that they seized. Japan would recognize the American administrator's authority and not hold them criminally responsible for actions they took as administrators. And Japan agreed to pay the U.S. $320 million over five years. The goal was to transfer sovereignty while ensuring a democratic government and keeping Japan from becoming an enemy of peace. Negotiations actually began in 1968. Japan wanted reversion by 72. The biggest issue being contested was the presence of nuclear weapons, as you would imagine. The United States wanted to stockpile nukes on Okinawa as a deterrent to North Korea invading South Korea. A special envoy, Kishi, even met with President Nixon April 1st, 1969, and told him, Many Japanese feel if Japan is to play a greater role in Asia, it is quite unacceptable for part of the country to remain occupied by a foreign power. In the end... The islands reverted to Japan. The United States got to stockpile nuclear weapons on Okinawa in case of an emergency. Problem was, is the question then had to be asked, what sort of emergency could occur that would require you to have nukes on Okinawa? Basically, a nuclear emergency. Yeah. That'd be not good. As you would expect, the reversion has been controversial in both Japan and Okinawa, though for different reasons. There is... A Ryukyu independence movement over uh, over in Okinawa, and they have they've been around since the end of the war, and they don't seem to be terribly fond of Japan or the United States. Right. They want to be their own kingdom again, like they were before the annexation. They think of the annexation as being illegal. 
that Japan had no right to do that, and they don't like. They want the the military bases gone. They want them out of there. It would also probably solve the problem with discrimination. Yeah, within the culture. Too. Yeah, because there's you know their longstanding hostility and the you know and you know the racism that has gone back and forth between the you know main the mainland and the island. Right, and that's another thing. People who just see this movie and not know anything about this that the, the racial and and just identity component to all all of, all of this all these issues because it's very central there was some rioting that occurred in okinawa after the right before the reversion and then after the reversion a lot of it directed against the military bases going back to the going back to the movie there's this whole thing with the simians and the fact that they themselves build a base on okinawa yeah and so there's this possibility that has been batted around that that the simians could be representative of the united states of americans or which seems to be a kind of a recurring theme with a lot of interpretations of these alien races right and and so i I don't know exactly what we're supposed to do with that but i think over out of all the movies we've covered so far this is the probably the group of aliens i would want to be least identified with Probably. I mean, cockroaches are bad enough. I never really made the the connections, honestly. I ever really made the, any of the connections between Americans and the alien invaders. You know, I don't think our villain in this really strikes me as very American. No. <laughs> pretty different. Uh, so I don't know. Um, it, is, it is out there. Yeah. I, mean, I think some of the Showa films, there's a little bit more out there than others, but it's hard to... It's hard to really gauge these because some of so many of them are symbols that are working on a couple of different levels. Yeah, actually, now that I think about it, it would make some sort of sense because not only do they build a base on Okinawa, but they're also working on a on a secret doomsday weapon, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you really start diving deeper, uh, deep enough into this, man, yeah, it's like it how can much, get a little unsettling. Yeah, it's like, how much of this do you want to unpackage before you <laughs> want to start putting it back into the box? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I think we better close that Pandora's box right now. <laughs> so this film was made probably for a specific reason. It was to kind of say sorry, maybe. A little bit. I mean, a little bit of reconciliation, I yeah, think. Yeah, so it takes a sort of reconciliatory tone between Japan and Okinawa. And that's, and the movie interestingly makes it sort of an internal conversation and that only internet, you know, only the international audience that really knew about all these connections would really be able to tell. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like an internal conversation. Yeah. I mean, look at the, the Japanese characters we have in this. They're always speaking kindly of Okinawan culture and of okinawa and they you know, let the old man air his griefs yeah griefs, yeah the, yeah the archaeologists are saying they're talking about how excited they are to go look for artifacts and such in mm-hmm. this they're absolutely fascinated by all of this there is no ill spoken of okinawa in this at all yeah and i feel like this was not only the 20th anniversary film for godzilla but in a but also one that says Here's a Godzilla film for you, Okinawa. So that's how the Japanese national spirit is being expressed in this movie. And we got a lot to get a hold of in this. Uh, not so much for Godzilla versus Megalon. 
Uh, we only had like, two lines about one issue. And now with this, there's the Okinawa was the, you can't disconnect Okinawa from this movie. No, it is Okinawa and it's all over the place. And, and it's even, it even has people taking a ship to Okinawa, mm-hmm. a, a cruise ship. And it's like, Hmm, maybe you're trying to encourage travel among the Japanese people to go see Okinawa again or for the first time. On empty cruise ships. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... It, yeah, they should have had the place packed with people, right? Yeah, you would think. But uh, a Kaiju Vision Radio episode wouldn't be complete without the annual Japanese economic figures. Right, Brian? GDP growth for Japan this time around in 1974 was negative 1.22%. That's one of the few times we've had a little bit of a recession. Pretty tiny, but... There's a, there's only been a couple of little hiccups on our uh, economic growth figures. The numbers are getting smaller, but the the issue is is that the numbers are so huge. Yeah. That that <laughs> a smaller percentage of a huge number is still a lot. The economy was still doing pretty well during the 70s in Japan. It was not uh, in a recession very much. One year in 1970 and one in 1974 where there's actual negative economic growth, but that is definitely the um, exception. Exception. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and even when there was a negative, a negative figure, it's very small. Japan is going to be entering a very interesting time for economic growth and GDP and its stock market too, uh, as we will see coming up in our next series, really of uh, of Godzilla films. Really, for this show, a series. Really, all you're seeing is growth. We would like to dedicate this episode to Shinichi Sekizawa. This is the last film that he ended up being involved with in the Godzilla series because he wrote so many of these stories. And because one thing that makes good Godzilla movies good is the story. He's considered, I would consider him a very important figure in the franchise. He had a very long lasting effect. I would still say his greatest achievement was Mothra from 1961 when he just completely changed the formula for kaiju movies and then uh, followed by i would say the first Ghidorah film when he changed the formula again and created a new kind of godzilla he's a figure that doesn't get talked about nearly as much as he should he's overshadowed by people like honda and tanaka and the fukube and subaraya and i can understand why but speaking as a writer myself i can say that screenwriting is i think a a vastly underappreciated facet of filmmaking because without a good story without a good script you have no framework from which to build a film yeah honda and all the rest of them would have had nothing to work with had sekizawa not given them such a great skeleton to add flesh and skin to and depending on how involved everybody else was with the movie, like Honda, etc. The Honda had his own imprint on these movies too, in, in a big way. But the actual mechanics of the story and the and the way that the dialogue of these '60s and '70s movies was written, I, I think these movies were massively improved by his contribution. Yeah, which is why it was it was tragic that he that he died in 1992. Yeah. At the age of uh, 71. Yeah, in the middle of the Heisei series. All right, listeners, in our next episode, Mechagodzilla returns and the Showa era ends in one of my personal favorite Godzilla films, Terror of Mechagodzilla. 
If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Churchill, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara. Sayonara.